We're looking at the subject this morning of hurting mothers. You'll note in your bulletin outline that the first mother is our mother. And I am referring, of course, to Eve. Hurting mothers all began with Eve. When being deceived by the evil one, she disobeyed God's command to abstain from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is not that Eve did not know the prohibition of God. Although she misstated it to the serpent in answer to his question, her words, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Genesis 3, verse 2 and 3. God did say, so you see, she knows. She knows the prohibition. She understood it. But she added, you must not touch it. God had never said anything about uh, not touching the tree. But brethren, do you know what this is? This is her conscience guiding her with good conclusions. Her conscience was saying something like this. You know, Eve, since God has forbidden you to eat from this special tree, it would be wise for you to stay away from it. Lest a look might lead to a touch and a touch might lead to a taste. This time her conscience is working really good. There's no sin in her conscience. It's telling her true. It's the old adage that has come down through the years. Don't play with fire or you're likely to get burned. Don't play with it. Or again, why is it that curiosity killed the cat? It's because the cat just could not resist being so nosy, so inquisitive, that he just had to investigate for himself that bare electrical wire dangling from the utility pole. So that's where I think this is coming from. When we come to the New Testament, we learn how Eve's sin came about and how her sin is distinguished from Adam's. Paul in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy instructs his protege on church government saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 14. And by the way, if you look in the Genesis 3 text, she says, I was deceived. She's, that's her answer to God. I was deceived. Genesis is the book of beginnings for many, many things that are found in the Scripture. It has tentacles that are far-reaching even in, into the church age. And so here Paul bases his reasoning on why women are not to be pastors and elders in the local church. He bases that on two historical facts, both dating from the time of Genesis, the time of the original creation. Fact one, Adam was first created, then E. Question. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? People ask that question all the time. You see, first, first has to do with priority. It has to do with protocol. 
It has to do with seniority. The feminists might like to reword the question, which comes first, the chick or the egghead? Thus implying that the practicality of women's thinking is far superior to the play by the rules, rules of the ruler in the home. But you know, in God's domain, being first is given a lot of weight. It's given a lot of weight. It's an appeal to the historical reality that Paul is making. And by the way, as an aside, this demonstrates that the inspiration of the scriptures covers concepts as well as the words that are chosen in the text. Paul's drawing conclusions from the fact that Adam was first created. So that's his first reason. Then second fact is this. Eve was deceived by the evil one and became a sinner. She knew God's prohibition. We already saw that. She understood the commandment. No problem there. But then the serpent came along and he kind of sweetened the prohibition by suggesting that to disobey God was the way to become wise like God. And secondly, that she would not die from such disobedience, even though God had said so. Well, Eve bought into the lie and she ate. We should learn here that being tricked into sin does not exonerate you. If you're smart enough to know right from wrong, to know what God requires of you, then saying, oh, he tricked me, or she tricked me, that will not make the wrong right. The fact that you were tricked. Eve was tricked, but she had all the same resources and information that Adam had. What a shocker when she discovered that God's word was true and the serpent was a bold-faced liar. But, but, it was too late. It was too late. So Paul concluded on biblical grounds why women may not act as pastoral leaders. Adam was created first, Eve second. Eve sinned first and was deceived in the sin. Well, what did God do when Eve disobeyed his command? Well, he pronounced this curse on her and her posterity. Let me read it for you. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth. With pain you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Genesis 3 verse 16. Here is where the pain of childbirth has its roots. Here's where pain for mothers has its roots. Jesus said, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. John 16, verse 21, the first part of the verse. Jesus said that. That's a known fact. Isaiah talks about the distress of Israel when ravaged by its enemies. And what does he use as the symbol of this distress? Lord, they came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth rise and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain. But we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to people of the world. Isaiah 26. Verse 16 through 18. In other words, they haven't lived up to their 
a mandate from God to take the gospel uh, to people. When God came, it was just as painful as birthing a child. Jeremiah says something similar. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and see. Can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. Jeremiah 30, verses 5 through 7. So throughout Scripture, God uses labor pains as symbolic of trouble and judgment. And it harks back to what went on in the garden with Eve and God's curse. Now God also cursed the man too, so we're not playing favorites here this morning, but this is Mother's Day, so we're talking about mother's pains. Secondly, you notice in your outline, the marriage mandate is a family mandate. Some fearful would-be mothers have read the Genesis curse on Eve, and they have concluded, I know what I will do. I just will not have any children. Their solution is against the cultural mandate given to both Adam and Noah, by the way, these words are almost similar. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. That's Genesis 1.28. But if you read Genesis 9 verse 7 with Noah, it's almost verbatim the same wording. So this is our command as surely as, it, as abstaining from the forbidden fruit was Adam and Eve's command. Jesus had the godly solution to the curse. And it wasn't, okay, I won't have children. Here's the rest of the verse. I'd only read the first part earlier. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because of her time has come. But, here's Jesus talking, when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. John 16, verse 21. Yeah, there's pain, but there is also joy. You know, if you look at the cross, Jesus says he looked at the pain of the cross and he endured it for the joy that was coming after the cross. So that's how he got through the cross. And Jesus is saying that's how women get through childbirth. They see the end product. Paul picked up on Jesus' wording and he says in that Timothy text, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15. Eve may have been deceived, and she might have been the first sinner, and she might have been cursed with this particular problem of pain in childbirth. But Paul says women will be saved through their childbearing because of the grace of God. Planned Parent has used the lie of population explosion to convince women not to reproduce or, or if pregnant, not to carry their baby to full term. Snopes, the watchdog website which tracks crackpot assertions, affirms that a number of mathematicians have calculated 
that the entire population of the world, 7.5 billion, B, B, billion people, could fit into the state of Texas with each person having a 1,000 square foot house. Wow. So a family of four, that's a 4,000 square foot home. Do you live in a 4,000 square foot home? You with families of four? Or more? And that leaves the remaining real estate of the world for farms to grow food, produce factories, to produce clothing and other necessities of life and so on and so on. That's a far cry from overpopulation. I remember as a kid growing up in the late 50s, early 60s, I remember hearing in school these kind of statements coming out of Planned Parenthood. Don't want to have too many babies. When a nation, for example, China, puts in an abortion policy that you may only have 1.5 kids, anything beyond that you must abort. By the way, that dissident, the blind dissident in China that's trying to come to the United States, that was his protest against China's forced abortion policy. Are we really to believe that a nation that large with that much real estate can't put all of their Chinese ingenuity and into growing the necessary food to feed their population. And yet this policy exists. The pain of having children, what's the solution? God will be with Christian mothers in a special way for their faith, their love, their holiness, their propriety. And we cannot forget common, God's commendation of Abraham, which went like this. I have chosen him, so, and him without Sarah, well, this wouldn't work, but him with Sarah. I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right, by doing what is just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Genesis 18, verse 19, namely that he would populate with a godly seed. Solomon writes, The righteous may, man leads a blameless life, and blessed are his children after him. Proverbs 20, verse 7. A godly offspring. That's why we need Christian parents having children and then teaching them the things of God. Most people, most Christians, come to know Christ while they're children in Christian homes. That's just a fact. If you didn't, then, then that's okay, that's fine. God in His providence brings us all various different ways, but often it's the parents passing on their faith uh, to their children, and then those children grow up and become uh, parts of society, good and active citizens, taking their faith throughout the society. So are the unbelievers going to do that? Are they going to bring this good for into society? They are not. Are they going to promote the gospel? They are not. So we have that mandate. Now that brings us then to the second part of our study, the pains of motherhood and God's gracious care. What are these? Well, I listed firstly the pain of no children. 
Obviously, this is a different kind of pain that mothers experience. This is not physical pain. This is emotional pain. We've just learned that there are could-be mothers who want no children, but now consider that there are would-be mothers who can't have children for a variety of reasons. Our text brings before us the account of Hannah, of whom we read, verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. But think for a moment of all the women referenced in the Bible who were childless because the Lord did not allow them to conceive. I mean, it's just an impressive list. God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Guess what? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. The women of those three homes, the wives of those three homes, were all barren initially. Manoah's wife, who was the mother of Samson, barren. Hannah in our text. Michael, Saul's daughter. Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, who brought forth the baptizer in the New Testament. Sometimes the closing of the womb was a judgment by God, as in the case of King Abimelech of the Philistines, who had conscripted Abraham's wife Sarah for his harem, and he would have taken her as his wife had not God acted. For the scripture says, The Lord closed every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife Sarah. Genesis 20, verse 18. The fact that he pleaded ignorance and that Abraham had deceived him bade well for God, reversing the judgment, but the point was that for a period of time there, God closed all the wombs of all of the Philistine women. No one was being born. You say, well, so what's the big deal? Think about that. How long is a nation going to be a nation? How long is it going to exist if there is no children being born? If there's no subsource bringing in and building the population? In our feminist movement age, in which women often put careers before raising a family, we do not always think of the social and spiritual turmoil experienced by Bible time women whose great desire was to provide a male heir for her husband. And this goes right on up through, uh, you know, 18th century, 19th century. You read the story of Queen Elizabeth, you will find the problem there was that she could not bear a male child. She had a number of miscarriages and so forth. Rachel became desperate over this issue. We read, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister, Leah. So she said to, Abra or to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Genesis 30, verse 1. And his answer was, Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Translation, what do you want me to do about it? I'm not God. So what's the solution for women who would like to have children, but they can't? Do you know that in every, in every incident, with the exception of Michael, Saul's daughter, God answered the prayers of these families and proved the promise, sons are a heritage from the Lord, children is a reward 
from Him. Psalm 127, verse 3. In every case. We've seen this in our own family, how God has blessed our daughters with children they never thought they could have. Others have gone the adoption route. Mimicking God's own way for building His family. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 1, verse 5 and 6. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. So God has various ways in which to deal with the problem of no children. Secondly, what about the pain of losing a child through miscarriage or abortion? I've heard doctors say of mothers who have miscarried something like this. Well, you know, the, the body has this natural sense of intelligence so that when it senses something wrong with the baby, the body will expel the child. And that's supposed to ease the pain of losing a child. But it's a professional answer to a mother's trauma that is deeply unsatisfying, to say the least. A binding, a bonding takes place between mother and child, which many men cannot relate to. And I'm not saying that husbands cannot grieve over a lost child, but too many times the pragmatic answer kicks in from us guys. Well, you know, we can always have another. I can remember saying that. But, guess what? This may not be so. Sometimes a miscarriage is indicative of the body's inability to carry a child to term, and it cannot be corrected through medical science. It just is. Many couples have become discouraged if trying for some time to have a child and nothing but multiple miscarriages occur. And a miscarriage is truly an unplanned ending of pregnancy. Well, what about the termination of pregnancy through abortion? Picture a 16-year-old teen who got pregnant by her boyfriend and her parents and her boyfriend talked her into an abortion because they could only see the child as something that would complicate her life, ruin her life. On and on it goes. Pregnancy Center deals with these kind of things all the time. It goes on today. Or picture a career woman, unsaved at the time, and, and, and she bought into the lie of Planned Parenthood that an abortion would be the best way to advance her career. I mean, no one told her that she might become sterile as a result of an abortion or develop breast cancer in later life, which the stats show. What solution is there for the pain of both miscarriage and abortion? And I'm grouping these together because both have to do with the loss of a child, one through natural causes, one through sinful actions. You know, God's Word through Ezekiel addresses the underlying Concern of Christian mothers, which is this. Where is my lost child? What has become of him? What has become of her? Listen to God's answer. 
Ezekiel writes, On the day that you were born, God is speaking through Ezekiel, On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for on the day you were born you were despised. What is Ezekiel writing about? What is God writing about? He's writing about an aborted child. In this case, Jerusalem. Then I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, God said to you, Live! I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. And later I passed by and when I, when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you that's to say he took her as his wife. Read about it in the case of Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth. That expression, spreading one's garment over you, is speaking of taking her under his wings, under his protective covering and care. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath. I entered into a covenant with you. This is the marriage covenant declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water, I washed the blood from you, I put ointments on you, I clothed you with an embroidered dress, and I put leather sandals on you, and I dressed you in fine linen, and I covered you with costly garments, I adorned you with jewelry, I put bracelets on your arm, and a necklace around your neck, I put a ring on your nose, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign. Lord. Ezekiel 16, 4 through 14. Now, brethren, while this is dealing with Jerusalem as God's bride, don't miss the obvious in the symbolism. The symbolism is important, but it's because of the realities that are there. God has a heart for the miscarried and aborted children of the world, those who for no fault of their own were either underdeveloped and something went wrong in mother, and so the mother lost the baby, or through poor counsel, selfish ambition, frustration, fear, lack of funds, whatever else is, goes on in people's mind, a mother decided to end her pregnancy through abortion. The result is the same. What's the result? God comes along. He steps in and rescues that dead or dying child. He picks it up. He washes its wounds. He applies appropriate medicine for healing. And then, and then, wonder of wonders, 
He adopts that child into his family and raises it as his own. Brethren, do you not know that conception creates a soul that lives on and on? Forget what Planned Parenthood says. That in the womb is a person with a soul. And God's love snatches that child from the trauma of miscarriage or abortion and makes it a part of his own family. Loved and adopted. And any mother here today whose child was lost to such things will see that child again if she herself is a believer in the giver of life and more importantly the Savior of eternal life, Jesus Christ. What a glorious healing for a very hurtful pain. And even if a child is lost to the judgment of God for sin, as in the case of David's adultery with Bathsheba, David could stop his weeping and his fasting, could rise from the floor, wash his hands and his face, assured of this. Here's his words. While the child was still alive, I fasted, I wept, I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But, but, now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. Second Samuel 12, 22-24. Miscarriage or abortion. God comes along and adopts that child into his family. And if you know that, that'll help with the pain. It will help with the pain. Number three. What about the pain of a wayward child or grandchild who continually makes wrong decisions? Wow, this is a, this is a biggie. The Bible family of Isaac and Rebekah would be called by the psychologists of our day, oh, a dysfunctional family. The Bible answer is that they were a family fraught with parental sin. Rebekah had born Isaac twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob was a mama's boy. He loved to hang around the house and cook meals and oversee various subjects and take care of the garden and all of those kind of things. Esau was his daddy's boy because he loved to hunt and fish and do all those things Mr. Macho types love to do. And as a bonus, he would bring home venison, which Isaac loved. The Bible's succinct way of saying it is this. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Genesis 25, verse 28. 
And I asked the question, whatever happened to loving both boys equally and appreciating their gifts and skills as the Lord had enabled them? Well, sin blossomed in the form of jealousy, in the form of one-upmanship, in the form of deceit, in the form of outright rebellion and hatred. You know the story. Paul writing in the New Testament says, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. And yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Romans 9 verse 10 through 12. Now you see that's contrary to patriarchal protocol. Jacob was to become the family head over Esau. Oh, no, 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 we don't do that thing in our society. The oldest is always the boss. Uh, We're not exactly patriarchal in our concepts today. But isn't that true in homes today? Who do we put in charge of the younger ones? You're old enough? No, We assign the authority to the oldest one. Well, God says that is not going to happen in in this particular situation. Esau is going to be subservient to Jacob the younger. Well, that was fine with Rebekah. (laughs) Not so fine with Isaac. Isaac planned to disobey God's wishes and bestow the family blessing on Esau, which is family headship. And Rebekah thought God needed a little help, a little push, to carry out his plan, and so she plotted with Jacob to trick blind Isaac into bestowing the birthright on him. Well, it worked. God allowed it to work. But we read, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him, and he said to himself, You know, the days of mourning for my father are near. In other words, dad's going to soon die. And then I will kill my brother Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 41. Well, he never got the chance. Rebekah convinced Isaac to send Jacob to her brother's home in a distant land. And we read, Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padam Arayan to take a wife from there. And when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married two Ishmaelite women in addition to the wives he already had, and those were Hittite women. Genesis 28, verses 6 through 9. And we read in Genesis 26, verse 35, they, these wives, were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. You know, sometimes our children in their adult status reflect the sin that they saw in the home, and they make poor decisions. Esau, to spite his parents, that's the only answer for this, to spite his parents, married the very women who aggravated his parents because of their wicked and idolatrous lifestyles. And Jacob fled the scene, happy to have slipped through his brother's vengeful hands. He had been a deceiver all of his life. He met his match in Laban's house when Laban tricked him into marrying Leah. After many years, God instructed him to leave Laban and return home 
But you know, home was where Esau was. Well, what about Esau? If I go back home, that guy threatened to kill me. God appeared to him and he wrestled with him and in through the night and stripped him of his pride and changed his name. May I say he changed his nature from deceiver Jacob to prince of God Israel. He had no way of knowing how his meeting with Esau would turn out. But we read Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and he threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Genesis 33 verse 4. God's promise to restore Jacob and protect him had come true. Jacob had learned not to be a cheat, not to be a deceiver, not to place his hope in his own wit or in his acquired wealth. You say, how do we know that? After the meeting with Esau, the scripture says, there he, Jacob, set up an altar and he called it El Elohi Israel the mighty God of Israel. His new name. Genesis 33, verse 20. Rebekah had died before Jacob returned home. But her mother's hope was nonetheless fulfilled. When your brother is no longer angry, she had said to Jacob, when he's no longer angry with you and he forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in a day? Genesis 27, verse 45. That's the last words that Rebecca ever said to Jacob. But it was a wish. It was a prayer that came true. She didn't lose either one of the boys. They were united. They were reconciled in the providence of God. We have the pain of children that make wrong decisions, become angry with one another. They're going to be out and become a part of the world. That's Esau. They're going to go to a distant land. That's Jacob. God's going to bring them together because of your love and faithfulness. And then lastly, what about the pain of a loveless marriage? The pain of a loveless marriage. While Jacob was in Laban's house, he fell in love with his youngest daughter, Rachel. And you know the story. He worked out a barter. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Genesis 29, verse 20. In other words, he was love-struck with Rachel. Came wedding day. What happened? Laban, the father-in-law to be, did a switcheroo. By substituting Leah, her name means weak eyes, for beautiful Rachel, and Jacob ended up married to the wrong woman. Wrong from his viewpoint. What did he learn in that lesson? Well, we have a custom here in Padamaram, and our custom is this. The younger doesn't rule over the older. In our country... The older gets married first, and then the younger gets married. See how that relates to his life? So what did he do? He worked another seven years to acquire Rachel. We read Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than 
Leah. Genesis 29, verse 30. The next verse says, When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. You think God's interested in your marriage life? How things are going with one another? Very much so. And the whole rivalry between Leah and Rachel began with this dual marriage. Each vying with the other over who would sleep with Jacob in the night. Each giving their maids to Jacob as concubines when they stopped bearing children. Rachel never was bearing because she was barren. So do you know that Jacob's 12 sons were a combination of the concubine's offspring and that of Leah, and eventually of Rachel, of whom the Bible says, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, she was praying, and opened her womb, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and said, God has taken away my disgrace, and she named him Joseph, and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Genesis 30. Verse 22 through 24. And God did answer that prayer for a second son, but she died giving birth to Benjamin. Well, Jacob did move back to Palestine and he settled down with his family there. You know the whole story of Joseph going down to Egypt, becoming vice-regent, calling eventually for the brothers to bring dad down as they had come down because of the famine. And so, it's, it's time for Jacob to die. How this happens, I don't know. But sometimes people know when they're going to die. You know, not the day and the hour, but they know it's impending. So, he says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. That's an Old Testament expression. I'm about to die. Become one with the dead family. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, which Abraham bought as a burial place. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. Did I hear that right? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Doesn't the scripture say Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah? But when he's about to pass on out of this life, where does he want to spend eternity, humanly speaking? It's by the side of Leah. Genesis 49, verses 29 through 31. In other words, the weak-eyed, unattractive, love-starved wife had become the love of his life. He chose to be buried by her. Every believer has the potential to change by God's Spirit. You should know that. Love, respect. Abandonment of selfishness and self-interest. Learning to live for others. To glorify God by becoming the husband or the wife. 
or the child or the parent that is patterned after God. You have the potential in the Lord Jesus Christ to change. This is the power of the gospel. A changed life. A righteous life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And even those sins that so much plagued us and how we hurt one another in those sins can be washed away and forgiven and our life turned around. Just think of these stories we looked at this morning. What a crook Jacob was. God turned him around. Whatever you are today that is sinful and wrong, whatever you are that makes life miserable for you, remember that God calls you to change and to become like His beloved Son. And hurting mothers find solace in God's grace, as do we all. Let's pray. Lord, what a tremendous blessing to see that hurting mothers, and we've only scratched the surface. There's so many other things that bring hurt into mothers' lives. But at least these are some of the major things. And I pray that you will help every mother here that's hurting to realize that God's grace is sufficient for all of that. And in the gospel of grace, in the gospel, there's power to change. As we come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We bless thee for that. As we go on in this series and learn of the other hurts that come into our families and into our lives, it's important to keep in mind that there is ultimately a good goal that God has for all of these things. And it's to grow us up in the things of God and to make us more like His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And it all began with repentance and faith in Him and turning away from sin day by day as each day brings before us a mirror of our shortcomings and failures, but also, hopefully, by God's grace and the empowerment of His Spirit, as we look into the mirror of Your Word, we can say, Oh, yeah, yeah, that used to be me, but it's not me anymore. I'm different. I'm changed. Lord, so much of this is pride. So much of it is selfishness. Deliver us from ourselves, we ask. For the glory of our God and the good of our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.